<laughs> this this stranger who's joined us and um, anyway, sorry, and go ahead. It's just so all anyway. Just it's good to see you again and Thank so, you. so good. Cruise down the Rhine. Then we spent time in Switzerland. We came home. We were home about ten days. Then we went to my daughter's in College Station for Christmas. And then the next day after we got back from there, we drove to Alabama to spend time with our other daughter and got back yesterday. That is so wonderful. Nice. Now it's time for a rest. <laughs> that is awesome. I, that, I don't think you know Anne, because I can't see Anne resting. Anywhere that I can see Connie ever resting. Um, I do rest, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> It's like ever since I've had COVID, it, it's just um, I get tired really easily. Oh, I didn't oh. know you had COVID. When did you? Yeah, get I had it? COVID back in September. Oh. oh okay. Yeah, yeah. For so for a good month there, but man, ever since like even now, just taking care of the babies or just doing anything, mopping the floor, I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Connie, wait a minute. Go back. You, I'm sorry. Did I? You had COVID and it, and you felt the effects of it. Well, in September, yeah. And I just said I'm just more tired now than, you know, I get more tired um, easily these days. I'm sure that's not age. <laughs> it possibly is. <laughs> I mean, it's really funny. You know, I mean, Suzanne and I don't have the kids as much as the, the grandchildren. But and I don't think she feels the effects ever. But I but I know I do. I mean, the, the you know, when you get I mean, when you get I've got a few years on you, and Suzanne does too, I think. But um, but it's just a you know you, it's the same mind. You're looking out of the same eyes. You're seeing the same world, but mm -hmm. physically, your body just is no. There's no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's just not the same from when I was younger. <laughs> yeah. 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 All I know is we go to bed by ten o'clock every night. And work. <laughs> that I never used to happen. We never go to bed at ten. Like midnight or twelve thirty, one o'clock. What time do you get up? I'm tired. That's my problem. I know. What I time do you get up? Eight o'clock or eight thirty. Mm -hmm. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Eight hours. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I I I want to. I'm sorry. I hope I hope more people show up. There are some people I really I want to see because we're finishing Lear, and I will be sorry if they don't. But I want to get going because. I've got all sorts of, of um, other things. Sorry, Doc. Other things. What other things? Cars. I've got um, serious, serious questions about Lear that that I think are important for all of us. And Anne, have we met your husband? I don't think so. You're gonna have. To to step in. Yeah, you, met, you met my husband. I was at one of your. Uh, yes, you oh. he, he was he, at the talk. He did come when we had the movie. Yeah. And the dinner. Oh, good. This is Barry. Barry, hi again. Hi, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Um, I just got back from the gym. <laughs> wow, good for you. Holy cow. Uh, All righty. Putting some of us to shame here. Um, I God. did walk today. <laughs> yeah, good. Suzanne or guys, Suzanne are going to walk after the class, but I I didn't make it to the gym today, and I'm but um, anyway, good to see Barry. Good, and it's good to see you back. Good to see you back. Thank you. Um, let's start. I I've got some questions that that so speak to our faith, um, and I want to leave time because I I just think they're tough ones. So. Let's start. Um, any prayer requests? I know Connie's praying for a friend, um, Robert, and 
we will include him in our friends, I mean, in our prayers, Connie, but anybody yeah, else? Lori, I think Lori and Chuck know uh, Robert Gonzalez, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he's having surgery tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. he's, yeah, he's um, he's got, he's just got some problems. He's got a heart murmur that um, they can't even, they really need to fix that first, but they can't because of the infection in the stomach. So they're going to do the stomach. Oh, tomorrow. wow. If, if any of you, oh, good, good. If any of you want to know anything about what's going on at Elizabeth Seaton's, you do not go to any of the priests. You certainly do not go to Father Flynn. You, you call Connie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I do have some connections there. A couple. Yeah, yeah well, we, more than a couple. A, well, we just have a Thanksgiving prayer. Uh, my youngest daughter got engaged uh, oh. the day before yesterday, and she's nice. going back to Dubai, but they're, yeah, they're trying to move back to Dubai. So, anyway, if you could just keep Eric okay. and Lauren in your prayer. Lauren? Yes. We start the crown the Blessed Mother Queen Wedding Planner, so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Lori, so, sorry, I, I only got half of that. I don't know if I've turned up my volume, but you want us to say a prayer? It's I've already. It's oh, my, my youngest daughter just got engaged. What's her name? Uh, Lauren. Lauren. L a u r e n, and she's engaged to Eric. Um, and they they're both moving, going to move back from the UAE here soon. So the wedding, we don't know when it will be, but uh, we just. Crown the Mother Queen Wedding Planner. So, <laughs> good. Congratulations. Congratulations you. for you guys, both of you. Thank you. Any anybody else? Um, I would like to pray for my son-in-law's father, Tom, who has had a recurrence of his cancer and will and is going to have his bladder removed. Oh. This is a priest. And this is a priest. You said Father Tom. No, 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 no. He oh, your father. The father, the father of my son-in-law. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. And he, uh, his name is Tom. And sorry, he's got cancer. What's, yes. What kind of cancer is? They, it? they don't even know over here. Uh, it was a uh, bladder, uh, and he had. They were able to successfully remove it before and reform the bladder, but. It's back, and so he is going to have to lose his bladder. So I know that's going to be a big lifestyle change. Yeah, 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 yeah. wow. Boy, boy, what to say? What to say? Sorry, don't forbid. Um, um, it, we expect so much from science today. I think too much, too often, and... Yeah. Um, really too much. I mean, I don't. I can't remember what's coming into my head right now, but I, I don't think it's Boethius. Well, this is key to be Boethius, but somewhere, um, you know, our first concern should always be what's going on with us and God, um, and our expectations that science can do so much and it just can't. Um, did all of you get my card? Did you guys get yes. my? Did you? We're just, I don't want to, I've got to limit this because I, I, I've got to be careful of my time. I let it get away yesterday. Were all of you aware of that tradition? No. Uh, the antiphon? Yeah. Wow. No. No, yeah. <laughs> just funny. I just, um, we, it was on a card sent by friends and I looked it up because I hadn't heard about it. And it was a, it was a different picture altogether and a very different card. But when I went online and looked it up, I was just shocked 
because it was so beautiful, so um, and I knew nothing about it, and now I'm glad to know something about it because I want to do something with it. It's just yeah. it it it's that ancient past that sadly we we lose touch with in our faith today. And I, I you know I just one of the one of the great gifts to us in our faith is the presence of these traditions. And there's so much in the modern world, the secular Protestant world, that pushes them off and you know, encourages us to live in the present, which is a good thing to do, but there's, um, there are these rich traditions that are so much a part of our faith, and I'm, anyway, I myself was shocked, so I, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope, I hope I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check my card to you guys. One of the sites that I happened to click on had to do with the naming of the father, and it was Jewish, completely Jewish, and I don't know if I got that included in the list of sites that I gave you, but if I didn't, I'll send it, because it was, it was lovely to go through the names of God, Yahweh, the Lord, and, and to see that the same thing was going on, even though it was changed with the antiphons in, in Christianity. Anyway, I hope you enjoy those things, and I hope you listen to the, the one that was a musical piece. The Beethoven? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a cello piece. It's, I, I think it's really lovely, but let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are glad to be together again. I certainly am. It's good to see everybody again. Um, um, you guys have been so much a part of our lives for so long, and it's good to see you again, and I'm glad you're all looking well. Thank you, Lord, for um, our presence and the health that we have. Um, most of us are too old. Connie's too young. She she doesn't know any better yet. Most of, Most of us are of that age where days are special because we know they're limited so we are glad to be together again um, um, thank you for the gift of yourself through the day um, and for all that's going on in this class that is a little bit strange that we're reading literature that um, I believe actually strengthen us in our faith and um, our powers of sight and, and our capacity to feel so that we're together again is a great gift. I ask a blessing on all of us and all that we're doing, particularly in this work. Um, these are gifts to us that are meant to strengthen our faith. Um, we have special prayers, requests of you, Christ, Father, Spirit. Watch over Robert in his surgery. Um, Polly's, um, Connie's word for him I think is appropriate. He's a pillar. He's there. He's always doing something. Um, there are always people like that in churches. Um, people come and go. They come to Mass and leave quickly. He's there. Has been there. Um, watch over him in his surgery. Be, um, be um, with his wife particularly. It will be hard for her to watch him. Um, let the surgery be successful, please. Whatever happens, whatever your will is, um, let this um, crisis, this difficulty, be an occasion for his growing even closer to you. I think you allow that, um, particularly for the people you care about, um, that you allow crises because, in a sense, they're gifts. There are occasions when we stop taking 
for granted the things that go on around us and get serious about things. So let that be so for Robert and his wife. Um, we ask a blessing on Lauren and Eric. Um, Aaron. Hmm? Aaron. Aaron. Sorry, Lauren. Aaron. Eric. 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 Let a blessing be with them. Marriages are so difficult today. Not, not always. I mean, St. Paul says, if you had a choice, don't marry. Because marriages, marriages are hard. We all know that. Um, let the difficulties that they will begin to take on with each other, because until marriage, you don't know. You, know, you, you just don't enter into this bliss the way the world would suggest it's. So let this be the beginning of a deepening in their love and their faith, and let their trials draw them closer to each other and to you. And let um, Chuck and, um, and particularly Lori, um, take a joy um, in what's happening for them. Um, and we ask for a special blessing for Tom. Um, uh, be with him in in his difficulties with cancer. Um, what to say? Um, science has already made an attempt, and it didn't work. Um, <laughs> we so often think we have the answers and have solutions to things that are done, and they keep coming back. So don't let him get discouraged in this. Um, let him see that there's something positive here that so often we put our trust naturally um, in whatever natural helps are given to us. Um, but sometimes they distract us. They keep us from turning to you so that whatever happens we have you. So um, I ask a blessing on all of these people and on a friend of ours, an older woman who's a neighbor of our daughter's. Um, Bet, who is having difficulties, she's really old, getting around and she had a fall and um, went in for hip surgery. Let the recovery go well for her um, and let her know your blessings. Let, Because of the thing, let her know that you're there with her. And let that be so for all of us um, in all that we're doing. Um, I offer, we offer these prayers, Christ, in your name our Lord. Amen. Amen. I know the person that I was thinking of, sorry, it skipped my mind. Um, in in uh, the St. Francis group, we were, we are, we've started scripture. We're starting the Gospel of Matthew and and <laughs> what must have been a curve for them. Um, I started out by by um, reading some passages from St. Thomas that begin the Summa in which he describes, get this you guys, get this you guys, um, in which he says that theology is a science. Now a couple of the people in that group are very scientific oriented, so I know they weren't very pleased to hear me say that. So, um, and I don't want to go into the defense here, but I believe it strongly. I mean, my, my hope is that we'll get to the scripture shortly after Shakespeare, but um, Anyway, it's St. Thomas that says, you know, we, we have all the natural sciences, all the natural philosophy, everything that deals with things of the world. But the one thing that should be most important for all of us is what's going on between us and God. Um, 
So anyway, um, let's let's turn to four quartets. And if you didn't read the little note I attached, <coughs> it's a section from the book that I. By the way, I I I think I put this in my letter. I'm. It's something I'm saying in earnest. I would be. Oh, by the way, sorry. We would be grateful for your prayers for us, for Suzanne and me. And I would be grateful for your prayers for this book. Um, um, I, I've sent it to Word on Fire. It's Baron Bishop's site, and they've opened up a new academic office in it. And and I hope I hope um, the book will get received. But anyway, I'd be grateful for your prayers on that. What I sent you was a section from one of the chapters dealing with the still point. And if, you, if you've not read it, you should read it. Um, it I think it'll help because I, I know Eliot's not easy to read. Um, I think it'll help, but take a look at it um, if, you haven't, if you haven't read it. For now, let me just do this. Remember that in the four quartets, Eliot's written four poems that comprise a whole. And the analog for the whole set is music. It's called the four quartets. So it's dealing with a musical analog that in a quartet you've got four different voices and very often those four different voices will play um, tunes that have five different parts. It's like a sonata. There will be a beginning and a, an opposition and then a resolution. The quartets um, each of the parts of the quartet has five parts in which to play out its contribution, whatever it is. So the analog is music. Each of the, each of the four quartets has a specific real setting. Burt Norton is a real place. East Coker is a real place. The Dry Sauvages are real. They're all real. So they're located in time. He makes that clear. When you read the images, you can't help but feel that you're in time. He's describing feces, you know, bones. bones, stars, um, walls, sunlight. I mean, he's, he sets the poem in a naturalistic order. But in every poem, he, even though he set us in a familiar context, he's also trying to get to something we don't see very well. It's always there. We always long for it. Our whole life is lived around it. We keep groping for it. We grasp for it. We long for it. We search for it. We think we're just about to get it. We turn a corner expecting it to be there, and it's gone. There's this longing in all of us for something that's there. But it just eludes us. It always will, in, unless we reach sainthood, because it's, it's in a saint doing what a saint does that brings him into immediate contact with him and that costs him his life here. That he lives in touch with that thing. Okay. So in all of the all of the poems he's dealing with this something that's always with us. We feel its pressure, we long for it, we move for it. Very often in our pursuit of happiness, we let things get in the way. We are so materialistic on our age. We think having things in our house, buying furniture and cars and homes and everything's going to make us happy. And we get all those things and we find ourselves lonely, isolated, not happy. Because those things 
won't satisfy. We know that from Boethius. By the way, let me give you a, a quick, quick, Connie. This test is for you. No. Quick test. Yes. What are what are the four things that most? This is Boethius and Saint Thomas. What are the four things that most of us pursue that will not give us happiness? Name one of two of them. Power, power, wealth. Power, wealth. Passion. Sorry. Passion or um, pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure. And there's one more. Um, help me, somebody. <laughs> yeah, good. So, power, wealth, reputation, pleasure are the things that most of us seek in the world, but they won't give us happiness because they're not lasting. We know that. I mean, the fact that we can get sick and have an operation and die. So, whatever we had is not going to help us. And, <laughs> you know, having all 10 homes in our name is not going to help us in that moment. So. Um, so he's all he's set us in the world, but he's using language in a way that m makes us aware that while we're here, something else is going on. That's as much as I can do, I think, to sort of help us back into the poem again. It's been a while since we've been together. Let me read a couple of lines from Bernd Norton, and then I'm going to read the the opening of um, East Coker. Okay. Remember that the still point, we got that image from Boethius, who got it from Plato, who was a pagan. And remember in Boethius, the center is that center of a circle, the, the wheel of fortune, and people who live on the circumference are more given to fate and passions and disruptions than anybody closer to the still point, because the closer we move to the still point, the closer we get to God and see things the way he does. Okay, that was Boethius's image. Um, Lady Philosophy gave it to him because remember, he was whining and crying and angry because he'd been falsely accused and he was going to die. It was the Job story. And everything she does is to help him to recover his memory, to restore what he had lost, to recall first things, presumably in a way that would console him going into his execution. Okay, he was never spared, he didn't survive. Um, the work drops off with Lady Philosophy concluding her argument, and that's where it ends. Okay. Um, but that image of the still point has been important for us. It is the most prominent image, symbol of King Lear. We keep hearing about the Wheel of Fortune, the pain, the turns of things, fortune. Um, it's clear that Shakespeare's thinking goes back to Boethius. Boethius informed everything that Shakespeare did. He couldn't have done it without him. Okay. So it's a major image in um, this modern poet, T.S. Eliot, who's among whose best works at the end of his life were the four quartets. Here are some lines from Bern Norton. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If all we have is time, once one moment passing into the past and another one taking its place, then we'll never know happiness. Whatever is right, whatever we long for is going to die. Whatever was here one moment's fading. So in whatever way we look, we just fix ourselves too much in the present, we're losing something. Okay. It's only because somebody comes from outside of time into time 
the time can be redeemable. Somebody's phone is going off. Um, after that, <clears throat> after that opening, opening, Eliot's words are: "My words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose? Disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know." That image is so telling because think about the number of women, particularly women, because they're so much more conscious of giving beauty to our homes that you'll have a rose or a bowl with a rose petal in it in the dining room or on a shelf or what do you call potpourri, yeah. you know, things like that. Um, clearly that's an image that's important for Elliot because the love of nature, of beauty, of something like a rose leaf takes us back to the garden and that beauty that haunts us. We want to recover what we lost. So he says, to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves, I do not know. Other echoes inhabit the garden, shall we follow? Remember, then he takes us into the garden. Quick, said the bird, find them, find them. We see the children and we see that couple looking over a swimming pool that's empty of water. It's dry concrete. It's an image of suburbia attempting to recover nature, but a dry one because we're in a fall. The things here that promise so much can't be fulfilled. Um, they look into the pool and the sunlight comes and suddenly um, we're taken away from that scene. It's, it's disrupted. They were behind us, this couple reflected in the pool, then a cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. We would rather live in a suburbia home than with God. It's hard, it's hard to live in the present. Um, time past and time future, what might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Remember, one of the great themes of the four quartets is the tendency to live in the past, what has been, the regrets we carry, to live in the future, some desire to escape, but not the present. And yet it's only in the present that we meet God because it's that present that links with God's presence. Remember, for God there is no past or future. There's only an eternal present. It's in that present moment that we meet Him. In the second section, he says, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness. Remember now, this is that still point. We're in time and outside of time. It's a paradoxical condition. It's where most of us want to be and struggle with our failings not to get there. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards. We're not in a past going away. We're not in a future going. We're, that still point is there. Neither from nor towards at the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. Now remember, I've given you that image in the piece that I sent you, you've read it. Picture a dance, can you, for a second. Picture a couple making a jump. Um, could they make that jump if they weren't in perfect balance with the earth and between themselves, right? Because otherwise, if they weren't, they would collapse. They would fall. 
All we see are the two figures. Is everybody following me? All we're seeing are two figures. And yet, watching them do what they do implies a still point, or they could never do it. They perform this amazing maneuver in the air, right? And they keep their balance. How can they do it unless they're related to this point of gravity or balance or whatever you want to call it? Is everybody following? That still point is everywhere. We long for it, we want it, we struggle, but it, it just is there and we tend to elude it, or it tends to elude us. In section five of Burton Norton, he says, words move, music moves, only in time, but that which is only living can only die. Words after speech reach into the silence, only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. All of our words, all of our language, are in time. Remember the opening lines, if, there's, if all there is is time, time's unredeemable. If all words are in time, then words are going to die. Words after speech reach into the silence. Only by the form, the pattern, can words or music reach the stillness. And then he gives these examples of, of the struggle to reach this um, still point in language, in poetry. He ends um, um, Burnt Norton with these lines, sudden in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves, there rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage, quick now, here, now, always. Ridiculous, the waste, sad time, stretching before and after. We spend so much of our times doing things and often just missing, yeah? But that's so much of our struggle. Um, okay, East Coker is a new poem, is, a, is a sec the second of the quartets. It's set in East Coker, it's a real place. And he's picking up the theme of time, but now he's looking at time in, in specific terms of things passing away, of coming into being and passing. Now hold on to this because every one of these places is real and every one of them is set in a new season. Spring, summer, fall, winter. So all the four quartets imply cyclical seasons, things changing, coming into being and leaving. Now stop and think about it again. The pagan would have said all things are cyclical. Even the human soul is cyclical. Plato believed in reincarnation. Or at some point gives us thought. Things come into being, they pass out again. You die, you take on a new form, you become, let's say, an animal or a camel or whatever, an ant, and you return to life. It's only when you're really good that you can return in a better form. So the pagans were taken by this notion of, um, of uh, reincarnation, or reincarnation, is that the word? Yes. Yeah. Um, because of the seasons. Now stop and think for a second, just like the dance. The cyclical nature of the season implies, it's by its very nature, a still point. Otherwise, how do they keep revolving in exactly the same way, changing each year while remaining the same, that the seasons come and go? So even the seasons themselves imply a fixed point, a still point. Okay? Now, East Coker begins with a quote that often people associate with uh, Mary Queen of Scots. If you go back in your history, you know that Queen Elizabeth, who was Protestant, executed her sister because of 
machinations that were going back there. Uh, Mary was a Catholic. When Mary went to the block, she's um, she's reported as speaking this word, these words, and Eliot will play with them. He'll present them and then reverse them, turn them around again. You'll see that. She went to the block saying, in my end is my beginning. Just like Boethius, she was not crying, she was not whining, she believed in Christ, she was not afraid, even though she was going to be executed, like Boethius. Um, she said, with no trembling, in my end is my beginning. She was not afraid of what came next. Is that clear? Is everybody getting that? So there's a dramatic moment about this that Eliot knows and he assumes good readers will pick up. I mean, readers don't, who don't know their history won't get it, but it's here, okay? So hold on to that notion because we know our belief is that our beginning and end is God. We came from him. We want to return to him. He is the Alpha, the Omega. Yeah? These are all familiar to you guys. Yes? Okay. So here's the opening section of East Coker. In my beginning is my end. In succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, are extended, are removed, destroyed, restored, or in their place is an open field or a factory or a bypass. Now in a moment, I'm going to shift my tone and I'm going to go back into Middle English. You've heard me speak it when we did Chaucer because I read some things because I wanted you guys to hear it. Elliot's going to slip into Middle English. And it's going to be his way of introducing the top past into the present, once again, be because it implies us there's something fixed. So even though the past is gone for us, it's not in eternity. That past is still present. Presumably, I mean for us, it's our belief that we carry the past with us to redeem it. We can't shake it, we can't deny it. Even if it's full of wounds and pains, we have to carry it and redeem it. That's part of our charge to live in time, to carry the past forward, to redeem it. Okay. So when I get to that place, don't be surprised, okay? Just know that Eliot's aware of what he's doing, okay, with language. Um, or in their place is an open field or a factory or a bypass. Old stone to new building, old timber to new fires, old fires to ashes, and ashes to the earth which is already flesh, fur, and feces. Bone of man and beast, cornstalk and leaf, houses live and die. There is a time for building and a time for living and for generation and a time for the wind to break the loosened pane and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered heiress woven with a silent motto. In my beginning is my end. Now the light falls across the open field, leaving the deep lane shuttered with branches, dark in the afternoon, where you lean against a bank while a van passes, and the deep lane insists on the direction into the village, in the electric heat hypnotized. In a warm haze the sultry light is absorbed, not refracted, by gray stone. The Delias sleep in the empty silence, wait for the early owl. In that open field, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, on a summer night, midnight, you can hear the music, listen to that, on a summer midnight, 
You can hear the music. Those of you who stay up late, Connie. <laughs> on a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe and the little drum and see them dancing around the bonfire. The association of man and woman in Don Singa signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament. Tua and tua, necessaria conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which betokeneth concorde, round and round the fire, leaping through the flames, or joined in circles, rustically solemn or in rustic laughter, lifting heavy feet in clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn. Their bodies were for nothing, they went to earth, <laughs> but it's that return to earth that provides the soil for new life. Unto, from dust we came to dust we return, the dirt replenishes, makes possible growth. Um, in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn, keeping time, keeping the rhythm in their dancing as in their living in the living seasons, the time of the seasons and the constellations, the time of milking and the time of harvest, the time of coupling of man and woman and that of beasts, feet rising and falling, eating and drinking, dung and death. Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here, or there, or elsewhere, in my beginning. You remember one of the things that I've been throwing at you guys a lot is this notion of the ap apophatic. You know, where are we? Where are we when we take the Eucharist? If we're living with Christ, we've got to be in a strange place. If we're too rooted in this world, it means we're missing something in this. We're missing that still point that's right intersecting both worlds. So Eliot has constantly got that on, in his imagery. You know, where am I in my beginning? Um, where's the dance? You know, we, to locate it, time is to miss it. It's, so this idea of the apophatic, when we take Christ in, we're never completely here, never com completely there, or maybe partially both. But we, we can't be just literally in this world, because if we take Christ into us, as man-God, he's locating us in another world at the same time. So even if we're on our way out of church to our car in the parking lot, we should feel that we're in the presence of a mystery. There's more going on in us. It's it should be a cause for celebration, a cause for gladness. You know that a Lord can do that for us. So, okay. Any any comments or brief? Let's keep. I do. I want to get to Lear because I've got this stuff. But any comments or any question that I can answer briefly on <laughs> on the four quartets? You know, we could spend a couple of weeks on each of the quartets. I hope that's clear, but. But it's not our purpose here. I just I want you to hear the lyric poem, the music of it, the rhythm, <clears throat> the beauty, and and just to experience that. So one of, one of the great benefits of this program, Bob, is that things that I've had in my mind for decades that I want to pick up and read, I actually do when you introduce them. 
and uh, that's one of them. So I need to get a good edition that contains all the quartets. One of the things I've been meaning to read forever. Well, just so you know, I mean, the one that I've got is a it's a Harvest book. It's a paperback. It's you know, it's this. Sure. I mean, I, I keep that by my bedside because um, I you know I go back to it and read it sometimes. And I think you guys know. I mean, I don't know if you can see the markings. I mean, I live yes. in these. I live in these books. It's one of the reasons I don't get a, you know, a hardback cover because I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, put myself into it everywhere. So anyway, that's a really good edition, and it's, it, and it's inexpensive. So, okay, but Elliot's got a, um, a collected edition, all of his poetries, which will include the four quartets, but it also has his other poems too. So, there's a good reason for buying his. You know, collected works because yeah. the, he he really is the the greatest poet of the twentieth century. There are lots of major poets. Yeats was one of them. Wallace Stevens, Frost, were all great great poets. But Eliot's doing something those other men are not doing. Um, pretty amazing. Okay, let's let's look at Lear. Um, looking ahead, just remember next week we're doing Pericles. Um, we'll spend a couple of weeks on Pericles. It, it's, it belongs to that last group of Shakespeare's plays in which he's dealing with sacramental things, with mysteries. In Pericles, um, a husband, um, a, a man faces a danger. I'm not going to give away the play. He faces a danger in the, in the very beginning of the play, and it forces him to go into exile. He has to leave his home, and he will spend almost all of his life in exile. It's about exile. And you know that from my own presentation that that should be part of our experience here. This is not our home. St. Augustine says we're a pilgrim people, we're on our way. The church is um, a pilgrim church. It's on its way. It's helping us. To get too settled here means we're not seeing something. And to, to get too settled in the other world means we're losing something. Because we're born into this world. It's where we're raised. It's where we carry on our life. But it's the life of a, of, a, of a pilgrim. So Pericles has to flee his home. And while he's in exile, he, he is washed up on shore of this people. And he, and he meets this woman and falls in love with her and marries her. And shortly after their marriage is consummated, he leaves on a ship. And she is thought to die in childbirth. So he thinks he's lost his wife and child. I'm not going to tell you any more than that. You're going to have to read the rest to find out. Connie, you have to read that play. Um, um, what happens at the end is one of the most amazing things. Not even Dante. Pericles is going to experience the music of the spheres. It's that unheard music of God's order. Nobody hears it except the blessed. And when you hear that music, it's a moment of blessedness because you're in union with God. So he's the only man that I'm aware of in all of literature that actually hears the music of the spheres. Now, why he hears it, you're going to have to read to find out. And I'm, give, I'm give, Connie, I'm giving you all a test on that uh, before we do the end of. Hopefully, it's not a long read. <laughs> actually, it's pretty short. It's pretty short. Oh, good, good. It's it's an awkward play. There's some awkwardness. Some people don't credit to Shakespeare. They think he collaborated with somebody, which may have been I don't know, but. Anyway, it's a good play. We'll spend a few weeks on that. It's all told from the point of view of a poet who lived centuries before Shakespeare. He's going to narrate it like a novel, but it's not a novel, it's a play. But that's, Shakespeare doesn't do that in any other play. 
It's, an, it's narrated by somebody from the past who takes us back into a past so that we experience the past as if it's present. I'm amazed that you guys are sticking around for this stuff. Me, me too, actually. Me too. <laughs> Connie, you didn't have to say that. But, no, but, no. No, but I, I'm glad you did because I give it to you all the time, so I'm glad to get it back whenever. I can't, I can't wrap around some of this stuff, but I'm um, trying. But just remember that, okay? That he's telling it, this is somebody who lived centuries for Shakespeare, and he's telling it to us now. So remember this apophatic that that these things are meant to by the way here's where sorry one of the things that saint thomas says in those opening questions where he says that theology is a science he says scripture was given to us because unaided reason our natural powers are not enough to give us to heaven god gave us scripture to help us with salvation to help us understand things that we can't understand without them and you know that one of my contentions is that the very greatest poetry is helping to do that as well because it helps us into those places to see things lots of people don't see. Lear is going to make that clear. It's going to be one of the major points that I'll come to in a few minutes in Lear. We're doing Pericles for a few weeks, then we'll do Winter's Tale. I think Winter's Tale is probably one of the most perfect works of art that I've experienced in my life. It's the most perfect expression of forgiveness that I know of. Um, it's an extraordinary play. After that, we're going to do C.S. Lewis and Chesterton. And what I'm going to do is change the schedule. I'm going to, we're going to do two of the best Christian apolog apologists of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. They're going to be defending our faith. They're not going to be writing fiction. And we're going to read one of Lewis's books called Till We Have Faces, which That's is nice. his greatest work. It, it, it's, it's so beyond the Narnia stuff. It is an extraordinary work. It's very short, very short, but I think it's his greatest work. We will read that. We will read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, and we'll read Chesterton's Orthodoxy. That's going to take us away from literature, and I think after that what I'm going to do is scripture. Um, I want to get to this stuff, and then for anybody who's got the wherewithal afterwards, if we stay together, we're going to return to s literature. We'll do Moby Dick. Um, Dostoevsky's brothers Kermaz, Kermazov, and Faulkner, some Scarlet some moderns. Huh? Scarlet Letter. Sorry, Doc. Scarlet Letter. And I guess maybe the Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne, who's writing at the same time Melville is. Um, we, we should do that. We should do that. Anyway, that's the tentative plan, okay? But for the next few weeks, we'll do Shakespeare, Pericles, Winter's Tale. So get a copy. My recommendation is that you get the Signetic Edition or or even better, the Folger. The okay. Folger is very very inexpensive and it's got simple notes. It's easy to read. It's very readable. So, Okay? Okay. Hey, Dr. Yeah. Uh, there's a, did you know Bob and Karen's on? And um, there's a lot of people on that I can't see. For yeah, I don't know. Here, wait, let me... I, um, hold on. I see Tina. Michael's on too. Oh, there. Sorry. Yeah. You, Bob, Karen. Hey, I'm sorry. I, I I enlarged the gallery. This function I just learned about, and sorry, I should have done it earlier. Michael, who are you? I don't. I partly recognize you, a face from the past. You and you and Anne. Um, 
<laughs> it is it is great to be back, Bob. Yeah, good. Thank you. It's good to see you. And I, and I have to let you know, I never made a margin note in any book until I met you. <laughs> well, that's that's a what else? That's a long overdue change, um, Michael. By the way, just so you know, one of the one of the one of my fondest images in literature that goes to that in Moby Dick. If any of you know the story, you know that. Ishmael is the narrator, and he tells the story about going out to sea, and he and he meets with this uh, barbarian, um, Queequeg. Um, what do you call him? It's not Indian, but um, but he's a savage. He's a barbarian, and early on, Tongan. huh? Probably Tongan. He, he's and he's a barbarian. He's a savage, and <laughs> and he's in some ways more civilized than the Christians in the story. I mean, that's going to be one of the ironies of Moby Dick, but. Um, Ishmael is Presbyterian and Queequeg is a pagan and early on in one of the chapters when Ishmael is describing his meeting with Queequeg he describes Queequeg on the floor worshipping his little idol and what Queequeg does is whittle like a like a little wooden thing I think that's the prototype of readers who are trying to do the same thing with your text. So it's long past time, Michael, that you should have been whittling in those books of yours. <laughs> anyway, um, it's good to see you all again. Bob, is Karen, is she around? Is she all right? What's going on? We've been here the whole time. Oh, she's just not present in the she's, picture. She's in the kitchen. She'll be right back. Okay, okay, good. Okay. There he is. I couldn't see him before. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's good to see you all. It's good to see you all. I'm back. Our kids are moving out. And we... anyway. <laughs> okay. Hi, Karen. Good to see Hi. you. Good to see Hi. you. Good to see y'all. Um, okay. Quickly, um, I'm going to put you all on mute to keep out the background. Anytime you guys want to jump in, jump in. Okay? Ask your questions or make your comments. Okay? Very quickly, some of the major themes of King Lear. Um, the most important is handing on the, the past. The whole problem that's opened in the beginning arises out of um, the way Lear passes on his estate to his children. And you know that that creates all of these problems. One of the interesting themes that's announced in that opening um, is that um, he looks at the world as something he can bargain off. He thinks he can buy love, so he's prepared to give according to where he thinks he's going to receive the greatest love. And um, we learn immediately what the problems are. I mean, we immediately we we get a sense of what some of the problems are that are buried and hidden that he doesn't see and hasn't seen, and that his children don't see. You know that shortly afterwards he's rejected by his daughters. He's he's asked to give up his retinue. He won't do it and he flees to the heath. And it's at that point that the two scenes become um, ways of critiquing Shakespeare's world. Because on the one hand we have um, the, the, ca the castle world, the world of castles and palaces and people who are well-to-do and wealthy and, and in power who can determine what is just and what's not just. And on the heath we have an image of people who are affected by that world who are homeless in poverty, who have been abused by people abusing justice. 
and it's it's there that we see Lear begin to see to see that he was blind that there were things that he didn't see um, it's the beginning well the transformation begins when he actually sees his daughters but the, the transformation continues while he's on the earth some of the major themes from there remember um, um, are the, th the themes of justice <clears throat> there are two kinds of justice in that world one that's man-made and that's arbitrary and oppressive that people in power use remember we saw instances of that in in uh, Cornwall when he was going to execute or punish um, Gloucester and said he should have taken him to a court but he didn't need to he was going to determine what was just or not and Cordelius or um, Goneril says the same thing that she makes justice what she wants um, she wants Edmund she will even plot to have her husband killed in order to get him. That's the justice of the world. The people can make just whatever they want. They can make justice conform to themselves. The other justice is there's a, there's a justice to the order that God created. That's the view we got from Boethius. Shakespeare would have had it. And Shakespeare knew well those two orders. We, we get them probably writ large in the closing, or the, you know, in the center of the gospel. When Christ is brought to trial before Herod and Pilate, because there we see the Lord of creation who made creation, who made justice, who's actually going to go to a cross to answer justice, that there is a justice to the order that he made, that he brings back into the world, because otherwise his crucifixion would be meaningless. He's there to atone for the injustice that we did God when we disobeyed him. So there's that justice on the one hand, and there's man-made justice with Herod and the king, um, Pilate, the leader, Caesar, um, who want to condemn him. Um, and, and remember that the Gospels begin with Herod trying to kill Christ. So we're seeing, at the very beginning of the Gospels, two very different, radically different orders um, in the way that they look at the world. And ironically, in the Gospels, the way they look at the the man who actually created the world himself, the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son. So the, the theme of justice, um, the theme of, um, remember it's the theme of um, 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 consolation of philosophy. The theme of anamnesis, of recovering memory, of recovering sight, learning to see things again. That Lear had lost his memory, that he'd forgotten what was good. The whole ordeal of King Lear is recovering a sight. And the irony is it's only when both of those men lose their sight, Glauc Gloucester li literally, Lear figuratively, it's only when they lose their sight and they realize that they've been blind that they learn to see again. It's one of the major themes. It's only, it's only when we reach a point of seeing that we don't see the way we think we do, that we're partially blind, that we learn to see better, more deeply. The theme of reason and madness, um, I'll, we'll get to that section, I want to I pick up there when we begin again. The theme of um, reason and madness, once again, picture Boethius' circle. When people are on the circle pursuing the same thing, pleasure, power, wealth, reputation, when people pursue those things, they become embroiled in intrigues with each other, right? 
um, watch your back, I've got your back, don't do this, leave a paper trail, do all these things to take care of yourself because in that world everybody's competing for money, power, pleasure, reputation, you know, those goods. So they're willing to injure each other, they're willing to use each other, people are willing to use human beings to get what they want. So that's the circumference of the circle. That's where most human beings spend the greater part of their lives. On that circle, people speak a certain way and people think they understand each other because they're using the same language. And they think that um, that's realism, that living that life is more real than anything else. And people who don't see the world that way don't understand things. So there's an assumption that um, as people use the same language, they see things the same way. When anybody departs from that circumference, people look at them as if they're strange or mad. The way they speak, the way they think, the way they use reason is different. And very often the people in the circumference call those people mad, strange, nonconformist, I mean, whatever. <clears throat> So those are just some of the more important things we looked at, clothes, exterior, roles people take, masks, things like that, or others. But I'm going to ask you the questions now that I'm going to ask at the, at the end when we go through the play a little bit, because I really would like you to have them on your mind. I would like to take some time with these questions, so let me get them out now so you can have them to think about while we're going through it. Um, is this play a Christian play or not? Lots of modern critics, most modern critics, most modernist critics, see the play as nihilist. That in it, Shakespeare is showing the absurdity of life. That life is meaningless. That it, uh, most people end their life killing each other, dying. There's, there's no God in this world. People are killing each other. They're all bodies are strung all Two nations have gone to war. France and England have gone to war. We don't even see the dead people on the battlefield, but we know they're there. Right, the battle is taken. The English have been defeated, or the, sorry, the French have been defeated. Lear is captured. Cordelia is captured at the end. There are bodies strewn everywhere. And at the end, in the in the more narrow circle circle of characters that we're focused on, there are going to be like Edmund's going to die, Goneril's going to die, Regan's going to die, Cordelia's going to die, Edmund, all of them, Lear. So lots of people say this is Shakespeare as a modern showing us the meaninglessness of the world. Is this play Christian or not? Is it nihilist? I don't want to answer this now. I want to get through the readings. But that's a basic question for me, okay? If it's Christian, is it Catholic or Protestant? Can we say, could a Protestant have written this play? It's a serious question. Could a Catholic? Do we know? How do we know? When you think about this play, I'd like you to think about Boethius and Oedipus Rex, because we've all done those works together. Bless your hearts. God, I can't believe you've done this. Um, Connie Avlato, oh yeah, how did I, why did, why did they have me up here in this image? Get me out, I don't know how to get me out of there. Um, um, remember Oedipus. We it read says Oedipus. someone's waiting in the lobby to join. Oh, Karen, well, it says Bob and Karen, but 
Who's I don't see. Oh, that Bob and Karen. Okay, we know they joined. <laughs> I think um, you've all read Oedipus. We've read Boethius, the Consolation. You remember that Oedipus reaches a point. This is the parad paradigmatic tragic work, Sophocles, Oedipus Rex. He thinks he has all the answers. He thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's got everything under control. He's a man of power. He's made king because of the use of his intellect. He's the one who solves the problem of the Sphinx, right? So he's a man who is um, valued for his mind, for his capacity to see. He thinks he has all the answers, and but he's in the midst of a plague, and he begins to search out the reasons for the plague, not knowing all along that he himself is the cause of it. That he killed his father, he married his mother, he's been in an incestuous relationship all of his life, that his um, sons and daughters are his brothers and sisters. By the way, there's the, <laughs> I'm going to give this away, there's the opening of Pericles. Just be aware of that. When Oedipus discovers um, that he's the cause of the plague, he blinds himself. My argument has always been, and I, I will not budge on this, I think he's the most extraordinary, beautiful creature in that whole play because he has a spiritual sight that nobody, not even Teresa's the prophet has. He comes to a realization about things um, that he never had before. It, there's a spiritual depth to what so um, Sophocles is doing in that play that's, that's pagan and amazing. Lear reaches a point of realizing he's been blind. Gloucester is going to be blinded. He's actually going to go through the last part of his life blind. Okay? So what's the difference between Sophocles' play, Oedipus Rex, and Shakespeare's Lear, with Lear and Gloucester, on this question of blindness? Is this a Christian play or not? And carry forward what I'm asking about Oedipus to um, Boethius. Boethius is Catholic. He's Christian. Um, we can say of Boethius in the beginning of the play, he's blind. He's whining, crying, blaming, angry. He's been falsely accused. He's going to die. Lady Philosophy is not going to rescue him. She's not going to save him. He's going to die. But, but everything she does in that dialogue consoles. It's, it's called the consolation of philosophy. That seeing things philosophically will help us. And in the help that it offers there is in a Christian world. So Boethius showing that reason is integral to our faith. Absolutely integral. We stand apart from our modern world in that way. The secular world doesn't believe in faith, and the Protestant world doesn't undermines reason badly. In Consolation, we're, we're shown that reason is absolutely integral, that it helps Boethius reach um, a point of solace calm a consolation before he goes to his execution. Um, we never I never asked the question is that I should have asked that question is that a Christian work? I'm, I don't want to take it up here but how are Oedipus Rex and the consolation um, what lights do they throw on King Lear? Because you know from your reading of King Lear that everywhere in Shakespeare's King Lear he keeps using this image of the wheel of fortune that circle image that we get from Boethius. He got it. He, he constantly uses that image, Wheel of Fortune, okay? So those are my questions. Is this a Christian play or is it nihilist? It's, I think it's the most painful play of all of Shakespeare's works. Anthony, Cleopatra, 
Coriolanus come close in terms of pain. I, I just think this is, and lots of readers say it's, it's awful, it's nihilist. So how, how, how are we going to come out on that, okay? Um, and when you think about it, set it next to Oedipus Rex because that's written by a pagan, not a Christian. It's amazing that Sophocles will show Oedipus realizing that it's only when he gives up his sight and turns away from everything in the world that he comes to his senses. Sophocles doesn't see Christ, but it's clear that he knows that there's something terribly wrong with the world and it's only he has some sense of something else out there. What it is, we don't know. We, we'll see it in Oedipus at Clonus. I mean, we read that together. You know that Oedipus is assumed by the gods. That's a stunning ending for a pagan play. But keep those works, um, Sophocles and Boethius, on your mind when you think about Lear, okay? And this question that I'm asking. Okay, let's, let's go to the play. Is everybody clear on those questions? The, the questions that I want to ask. Okay, I want to. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can. Sorry for the rush, but I'd like to go back and pick up where we left off at the end. I'm really sorry that Melody's not here. Um, Melody, if you pick up and listen to this afterwards, I hope you know that I've got you partly on my mind because of some of the questions you were asking. But hopefully, we can pick them up here and give some answers to them. Go to Act Four, Scene Six. A line, line 100, roughly a line, r roughly around 100. Just before this, this exchange, this amazing exchange between Lear and Gloucester, um, Edgar, remember, has taken his father to the cliffs and he put on that uh, mime, that show. He put on a mask and pretended to be something he wasn't. And we went through this. I, I hope you'll go back if you didn't because there's a lot there. Um, the, 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 one of the major points to me in the play rests here with what Edgar does. He pretends to be somebody he's not in order to help his dad. If he was just his son and, tr and remained his son and he didn't put on a mask, he wouldn't be able to do what he does. So Shakespeare's showing us that sometimes we have to try to become somebody we're not in order to help somebody. Think about people with dementia or Alzheimer. You know, who can't, who can't depend on a connection. The, somebody dealing with somebody who's got Alzheimer's has got to take on a role. Let's say it's a daughter with her mother. If her mother doesn't recognize her as a daughter, it's not going to help her to keep going back to things she won't remember. She's got to assume a role, to be, to be somebody she's not. So Edgar has to assume this role. He takes his dad to the cliffs. He describes it as this dead, fatal fall when it's only a few feet. And when his father survives it, he thinks a miracle has taken place. And Edgar reinforces that scene by saying that there was some demon or some strange figure that he survived it. So it's like he's gone through um, a threatening, let's say demonic moment, and survived it and come out. And it's at that point that Gloucester says he will never, he will never doubt again or go back to the life that he had, although we're going to see the irony of that short, shortly. But that's where we are. Edgar is now taking his father to Dover Beach, where the French armies are, where the battle between the French and the English will take place, okay? And it's just before they get to Dover Beach that Gloucester and Lear meet again for the first time in a while, since these changes have taken place. 
Glauter's last words with his son Edgar before his meeting with Lear, this is Act 4, Scene 6, about line 80 or so. As I stood here below, um, Edgar says, I thought I saw this strange thing up there. Gloucester says, I do remember now. Here's this theme of anamnesis, of recalling things um, that include the present and a strange past. I do remember now, henceforth I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself, enough, enough, and die. He will not give in to despair again, he says. That thing you speak of, I took it for a man, often t'would say, the fiend, the fiend, it led me to that place. It's like he's escaped the fiend. Now he and Lear are going to meet. In line 108, roughly 105, somewhere in your edition, Lear says, when he and Gloucester meet, I every inch a king, when I do stare, see how the subject quakes. Lear's recalling that when he was a king, anybody in his presence shook he inspired fear wherever he went. I pardon that man's life. What was thy cause? Adultery? Thou shalt not die. Die for adultery? No. The wren goes to it, and the small gilded fly does lecher in my sight. It's everywhere. Let copulation thrive. For Gloucester's bastard son was kinder to his father than my daughters got between the lawful sheets. His daughters were born legally. He thinks Edmund's was better, even though he was an illegitimate child, although it turns out he, in the beginning of his life he was worse. To it, go to it, luxury, pell-mell, have your way, for I lack soldiers. I don't have anything to take care of right now, let me do whatever I want. Um, behold yon simpering dame, this simpering woman, whose face between her forks presages snow, that minces virtue and does shake the head to hear of pleasure's name. She's very proper and looks down on people who are doing what they shouldn't do. Um, the fitchu, nor the um, soiled horse, goes to it with more riotous appetite. Down from the waist they are centaurs, women. They're animal beasts or human beasts. The women all above so above their belt lines. But to the girdle do the gods inherit beneath is all the fiends. There's hell, there's darkness, there's the sulfurous pit, burning, scalding, stench, consumption, fie, 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 pa, pa, give me an ounce of civet, good apothecary, sweeten my imagination, there's money for thee. He looks around and all he sees is loose women. It's actually playing loose with things. Gloucester, when he hears Lear speak these words, oh, let me kiss that hand. Let me wipe it first. It smells of mortality. Gloucester, oh ruined piece of nature, this great world shall so wear out to nothing. He's watched. A, now remember, there was a king. He's, he's seen a king reduced from what he once was. Dost thou know me? I remember thine eyes well enough. Dost thou squint, squinny at me? No, do thy worst, blind Cupid. I'll not love, because remember, one of the images of love is that it's blind. It does all these strange things. Read thou this challenge. Mark but the penning of it. He's looking at the penning of it, the representing of it in Gloucester's eyes. His eyes are out. Gloucester, were all thy letters sons, I could not see. I would not take this from report. It is my heart breaks at it. Edgar's looking at it, and it's too, almost too much to bear to watch these two men. Lear uh, or Gloucester, what with the case of eyes, 
Oh, ho, are, are you there with me? No eyes in your head, nor no money in your purse. Your eyes are in a heavy case, your purse in a light. Yet you see how this world goes. By the way, let me stop here. Does it, do, do, do those words remind you of anybody? No eyes in your head, no money in your purse. Your eyes are in a heavy case, your purse in a light. Yet you see how this world goes. Gloucester, I see it feeling me. I mean, he's learned to see with his heart for the first time, I think. But do Lear's words remind you of anybody in the play? Fool. Fool. I can't hear them without hearing the fool. Remember we talked about that point at which um, the fool comes into his life when Cordelia goes and the fool leaves when she comes back. That, that um, Lear's a changed person now, things are different. His words here remind me of the fools and it, it's just one of the marks that Lear is learning to see things now in a way that he didn't before. Lear, what art thou mad? Art mad? A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look with thine eyes. See how yon justice rails upon yon simple thief. Hark in thine ear. Change places in handy dandy. Which is the justice? Which is the thief? Thou hast seen a farmer's dog bark at a beggar? Aye. And the creature run from the cur? There thou mightest behold the great image of authority. A dog's obeyed in office. Thou rascal beetle, hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou lash that whore? Strip thine own bat, take your justice cloak off. Thou hotly lust to use her in that kind for which thou whippest her. You have the same lust inside of her that you're condemning her for. This is Christ saying to the world, Shakespeare couldn't have written these without Christ, saying the inner life is more important than the outer life. The Jews could practice a law, but the danger was it's true for all religions. It was true for the Jews back then. It's true for us today as Christians. That we can go around living by the law and acting self-righteous because we're living the law without dealing with the real faults that are inside of us. And Lear has come to that recognition. Um, take the cloak off. The user hangs the, cos the cosener. The man who seeks after money is, is hanging the little thief. Through tattered clothes, small vices do appear. We see small faults in poor people. Robes and furrowed gowns hide all. Plate sin with gold, and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Armed in rags, a pygmy straw does pierce it. So long as a man's wealthy, he's protected from injustices hurts. A poor man can be wounded by a straw because he's so much more vulnerable. None does offend, none, I say none, I'll able them. Take that of me, my friend, this new view he has, who have the power to seal the accuser's lips. He's a king. Get, the, get, the, get thee glass eyes, and like a scurvy politician, seem to see the things thou dost not. So all the politicians who think they see things so well, even the justices of the peace, in fact do not. They're just going through the motions. Now, 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 pull off my boots harder, harder. It's interesting right now that um, he's in contact with the ground. He's lost everything, his robes, his crown. He's seen everything in a completely different way, and in fact, in a way that you can almost say is its opposite. He's learned to see how corrupt the wealthy um, 
the established people are. Lear, if thou will weep my fortune, take mine eyes. I know thee well enough. Thy name is Gloucester. Thou must be patient. We came crying hither. Thou knowest the first time that we smell the air. We wall and cry. I will preach to thee. Go down. When we are born, we cry that we come into this great stage of fools. Tis a good block. It were delicate stratagem to shoe a troop of horses with felt to do something so stupid. I'll put it in proof, and when I have stolen upon these sons-in-laws, then kill, 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 kill. When you take off the robes, um, by the way, this is the, this is the principle, Shakespeare would have known it well. It's the principle of the social contract theories which forms the idea of justice in the modern world. For those of you who don't know, the social contract theories from Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau is all of us live in a state of nature. All of us. In a state of nature, we would kill each other because the motivating principles are pride and anger. The principle of governance is self-preservation. In order to protect our lives, we'll kill other people. That's our natural, that's their view of our nature. Catholics should not agree with that, but that's their, it's, that is, it's, we're depraved. That's a more modern notion, we're depraved. The only way we can get around that depravity is by agreeing to compromise. I won't do this with you if you don't do this for me. So the nature of the modern sense of justice is compromise. It's called the social contract. That's the basis of modern political theory. Shake Lear at this point says, take off all your robes. And when I have stolen upon these sons-in-laws, then kill, 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 kill. He thinks Edgar's bad. He thinks um, Edmund's bad. He knows his daughters are bad. Now it's at this point that the, that the men come from Cordelia and take him back. And he says, this is about line 180, No rescue, what a prisoner. I am even the natural fool of fortune. There's that Boethian image again, this wheel of fortune. Um, it's at this point that Edgar takes his father onward. And um, you remember it's at this point that... Um, about line 254 that Edgar reads the letter because he killed um, Oswald who, whom uh, um, Goneril gave the letter to. He kills him and he's got the letter and he reads the letter. This is his reading of Goneril's letter. Let our reciprocal vows be remembered. She's writing it to Edmund because she wants Edmund to kill her husband so she can marry him. You have many opportunities to cut him off. If you will want not Time and place will be fruitfully offered. You'll have plenty of opportunities. There's nothing done if he return the conqueror. If he defeats the French, then I am the prisoner and his bed my gale, jail. From the loathed warmth whereof deliver, me, whereof deliver me and supply the place for your labor. Kill my husband and you have my bed. Um... Edgar says, oh, in distinguished space of woman's will, a plot upon her virtuous husband's life. So it's at this point that um, Almady is going to confront Edmund with treachery because he has the letter. And it's at this point when Edgar will um, appear as um, the one who will take up the charge against Edmund. And you know the two fight and Edgar wounds um, his brother fatally and the men will die. Now, that's where we were last week. So let's pick up in Act 5, Scene 2. I want to do this very quickly. Sorry, but...
I want to get to these questions. They've arrived at Dover. Lear and Cordelia have been captured by the English. In Act 5, Scene 2, um, Edgar's with his father. He runs off because the battles are the, 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 the battles joined by the two forces. He runs off and he comes back quickly, knowing now that the English have defeated the French. Act 5, Scene 2. Here, Father, take the shadow of this tree for your good host. Pray that the right may thrive. If ever I return to you again, I'll bring you comfort. He's going to battle. And he's hoping that the good side will win. Because he knows about all the treacheries on the English side. Think about how this would have set with an English audience, by the way, who hated the French. Right? Edgar comes immediately back and says, Away, old man, give me thy hand away. King Lear has lost. He and his daughters even. Give me thy hand. Come on, Gloucester. No further, sir. A man may rot even here. What did Gloucester just say a little while before? Remember the words? Affliction, henceforth I'll bear affliction till it do cry out itself, enough, enough, and die. That thing you speak of, I took from him. He says, I'll never despair again. Shortly after that, Gloucester, no further, sir, a man may rot even here. Edgar, what, in ill thoughts again? Men must endure their going hence, even as they're coming hither. Ripeness is all. Come on. By the way, I... I don't, I don't know if you hear the echo, but you have to hear the echo with Hamlet at the end of Hamlet when Hamlet says the readiness is all. He knows he's going to go in. He does not know what the outcome is going to be. Think about the resemblance between Edgar here and Hamlet. Hamlet said the most important, remember, if it's going to be, it will be. If it's not to be, it won't. What's most important is the readiness of all. That's as good a Boethian state or Christian statement as I know. No matter what happens, we are asked to live in the present, even if it involves a great suffering. Yeah? Does that mean you don't fight? It didn't mean not to fight for Hamlet. It doesn't mean it for Edgar. What it says is be ready in that moment to do whatever you have to do. Is everybody following? So the readiness is all in here for Edgar. Men must endure their going hence, even as they're coming hither. Ripeness is all. Come on. So he takes him on. We go to Cordelia and Lear, who are reunited for the first time. When they meet, Cordelia acknowledges the difficulty, and Lear says, um, No, 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 come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news and uh, talk of court news not heath news we'll talk with them too who loses who wins who's in who's out and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were god's spies and we'll wear out in a walled prison packs and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon edmund says take them away lear upon such sacrifices my cordelia the gods themselves throw incense have I caught thee? Um, Edmund wants to take them off to be executed, and um, you know that um, he's going he's gonna to do that, and a messenger will come back telling him that Goneril has killed her sister and poisoned herself. Okay? Um, 
Um, it's here when the ordeal takes place between Edgar and Edmund, and Edgar wounds his brother fatally. Go to line, um, Act 5, Scene 3. Edgar is confronting his brother and says, um, Albany says, if there be more, more woeful, hold it, for I am almost ready to dissolve hearing of this. Um, because Edgar describes what happens to his father, Edgar's father, um, Gloucester. He says um, to Edgar and Edmund, his brothers, hearing this about his father, Edgar, about line 180, by nursing them, my lord, list a brief tale, and when tis told, oh, that my heart would burst. The bloody proclamation to escape that followed me so near, our lives' sweetness that we met, that we, the pain of death, would hourly die rather than die at once. Remember, he was leaving his father to go fight, and then immediately it comes back because the French have lost. Um, they were facing that moment. He wanted his father to get away. Rather than die at once, taught me to shift into a madman's rage. Rags, that's what he's done in in the effort to help disguise himself and help his father, taught me to shift into a madman's rags, assume a semblance that very dogs disdained, and in this habit met I my father with his bleeding rings, their precious stones new lost. His eyes were gouged out. Became his guide, let him beg for him, saved him from despair, never, O oh, fault, revealed myself unto him until some half hour passed, when I was armed, not sure, though hoping of this good success, hope for a good outcome in the battle, I asked his blessing, and from first to last told him our pilgrimage. So he's default. Remember, Edgar was his legitimate son. He loved him. He thought his son betrayed him and hated him since, and now his son's in front of him, opening, telling him what's happening. His father's hearing it. So his father gives him his blessing. I asked for his blessing and first to last told him our pilgrimage. But his flawed heart, alack, too weak, the conflict to support, twixt the two extremes of passion, joy, and grief, burst smilingly. Gloucester's heart breaks, but he's glad. He's reunited with his son. He's learned to see the truth. Remember, he's gone blind. He's seen the evil of the world. He's turned away from it. His son has helped him without knowing it was his son. Now he does. Okay. Um, so Edmund hears all of this. Um, and he's wounded now, and it's at this point that he learns that Goneril has killed her sister and poisoned herself. And it's at this point something strange happens. Um, about line 225, a gentleman comes out and says, Your lady, sir, your lady, and her sister by her is poisoned. She confesses to Edmund. I was contracted to them both, all three now marry in an instant. Here comes Kent. Albany produced the bodies, be they alive or dead. This judgment of heavens that makes us tremble touches us not with pity. Oh, is this he? The time will not allow the compliment which very manners urges. They're all undone. Kent, I am come to bid my king and master I good night. Is he not here? He's going to leave. We know he's going to leave on a pilgrimage. 
and then Lear comes out carrying Cordelia dead. Okay. Um, Kent says, alack, why thus? Edmund says, yet Edmund was beloved, the one the other poisoned for my sake, and after slew herself, Albany, even so cover their faces. Edmund, Edmund, who's been the most evil creature in the book, I pant for life. Some good I mean to do, despite of mine own nature, quickly send, be brief in it, to the castle, for my writ is on the life of Lear and Cordelia. Nay, send in time, quick, go save them. Lear comes out, um, carrying Cordelia. She's dead, about line 260. How, how, old you men of stones, had I your tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. She's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as earth. Lend me a looking glass. If that her breath will mist or stain the stone, why then she lives. Ken says, is this the end? They can't believe um, because, because the devastation's too great. Son watches his father die. Um, brother and brother uh, have been in a duel. Um, the daughters are dead. Lear, a plague upon you, murderers, traitors, all. I might have saved her, now she's gone forever. He could have saved her a minute earlier. So this is why people say it's a Neela's play. No purpose. Cordelia, Cordelia, stay a little. Ha, huh? what is it thou sayest? Her voice was ever soft. Gentle and low, an excellent thing in women. I killed a slave that was hanging me. I want to go back for a moment if you can, because I, um, I skipped it and I don't want to... Um, remember when Lear and Cordelia meet, because I want to put these two passages next to each other. Five, Act 5, Scene 7, about line 60, um, Cordelia um, is with her, and, and Neil, or Lear kneels down to his daughter. He's a king. He's never knelt before anybody. He kneels down, and she says, Oh, look upon me, sir, and hold your hand in benediction over me. She wants his blessing. You must not kneel. Pray do not mock me. I am a very foolish old man. <clears throat> Four score and upward, not an hour more or less. And to deal plainly, I fear I'm not in my perfect mind. Methinks I should know you, and know you this man. Yet I'm doubtful, for I'm mainly ignorant. What place this is, and all the skill I have remembers not these garments. Nor I know not where I did lodge last night. Do not laugh at me, for as I am a man, I think this lady... To be my child, Cordelia. And so I am, I am. Be your tears wet, yet faith, I pray, weep not. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. I know you do not love me, for your sisters have, as I do remember, done me wrong. You have some cause. They have not. He acknowledges his wrong against her. No cause, no cause. Am I in France, in your own kingdom, sir? Do not abuse me. Be comforted, good madam. The great rage you see has killed him. He's saying, let him rest. Um, um, trouble him no more till further settling. He thinks rest will do it all. He has, he's a doctor. He has no clue about what's going on. Will it please your highness walk? You must bear with me. Pray you now. Forget and forgive. I am old and foolish. Those are their last words together. And now Lear carries him out. And he's looking at her and saying... Her voice was ever soft, gentle and low, an excellent thing in woman. I killed the slave that was hanging thee. 
He confirms everything. A messenger comes and says that Edmund is dead. Albany says about line 300, that's but a trifle here. There's dead bodies everywhere, but what's going on in front of him involves a king and his daughter. It, it's where the play began. It's where it ends. Um, you're, um, that's but a trifle here. Your lords and noble friends know our intent. What comfort to this great decay may come shall be applied. For us, we will resign during the life of this old majesty to him our absolute power. She's going to turn rights back, or his rights back to king. You to our rights with boot and such addition to, as your honors have more than merited. All friends shall taste the wages of this virtue and all foes the cup of their deserving. He'll punish those who deserve it. O-C-C. Now Lear, Lear says with on the ground holding Lear or Cordelia in his arm and my poor fool is hanged. Remember the talk we've had about the fool when he comes and when he disappears and my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all? Thou comest no more. Never, 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 never. Five nevers. Pray you undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look her lips. Look there. Look there. He dies. The doctor says, um, let him go. Edgar. Um, he's gone. He's gone indeed. Um, can't vex not his ghost. Let him pass. Um, Albany says, bear him, bear them from hence. Our present business is general woe. Um, rule in this realm and the Gore state sustain. Kent, I have a journey. He's turning power over to his friends, Kent and Edgar. I have a journey, Kent says. Sir, shortly I must go. My master calls me. I must, I must say no. He's going to leave. He won't take on the reign of power. Edgar, the weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most. Remember, we're going back nine centuries before Christ. The oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. So Edgar will um, pick up um, the rain. Let me stop. I want to go to these questions that... Um, to me are so central to this play. Most critics look at this play as a nihilistic play, and you you see there's good reason. Um, these words that Lear and um, Cordelia exchange, um, Lear says, stay a while, um, I killed a man that was hanging. If, he had, if Edmund had spoken three minutes earlier, um, Cordelia would have been spared, and um, I may be claiming too much here, but Lear might have lived. Um, I, I think it's a question here whether he doesn't die of a broken heart the way Gloucester did when Gloucester learned that um, his son had been helping him all along. He was overcome with guilt and joy. It's If you remember um, Anthony and Cleopatra, Anthony and Cleopatra were facing the similar kind of thing, and, and all those who loved them were dying from broken hearts all around them. So um, there's lots of reason for saying this is a nihilist play. Is it nihilist? Is it Christian? It's a, it's a serious question. Um, um, wh where are you guys on this question? 
how do we how do we look at this play? It's it's one of the most painful in all of Shakespeare's canon. Michael. Doc. Where are you on this? Mike. Well, we uh, hmm. I can't I can't help but see the uh, the a theme of redemption uh, and most particular in the case of uh, Gloucester and not just that he he repents to the gods for his attempted suicide but he uh, he repents later on when he realizes that who Edgar is and he repents of his uh, betrayal of Edgar and his false his his being duped by and his misjudgment really of, yeah. of Edmund yeah. yeah his his misjudging his motives yeah and then the uh, uh, Edmund himself, which was a, a, a big surprise to me, Edmund, on his on his death, repents of his his evil, yep, uh, and makes a uh, too little, too late attempt to save the king and Cordelia. Yeah, Connie, what do you, what do you, where do you wait? Let me. So, Mike, sorry. So is it a Christian play? So you're saying it is because the element of redemption, the way you've described it? Well, I hold it to be Christian because of my close relationship with the sacrament of, of uh, reconciliation. But, I mean, the, the concept is, the concept of redemption is, is there in other, in other faiths as well. Yeah. Connie, go ahead. Where, what, how, what's your response to the question? How do you look at the play? Yeah, I would say I would definitely say it was Christian, but just like Michael said, there's a lot of re redemption going on. They start off, you know, like King Lear, and he's uh, kind of um, quite selfish and um, you know just wanting um, the power and the you know the the love of his daughters to be you know spoken in public. And um, comes to find out that the one that he, Cordelia, who didn't give him what he wanted, was the one that really loved him. That you know, that truly loved him. Yeah. And you know, he finds that out at the end. And of course, he you know um, has that wonderful conversation with her about forgiveness and uh, you know wanting her to forgive him. And um, yep. but yeah, I would. I would definitely say it was uh, a Christian play, not a nihilist for sure. Yeah. Bob, Karen, you both look, what's the word? You both look like you're seriously pondering something here. What's, got both have heavy thoughts. Can you, what's either one of you or both of you? It would be good to hear from both of you, but. Your cut. Your audio's not on, Karen. 
There's an X going through your microphone image or a line. I'm not sure. It, it won't come on. It won't come well, on. Well, you guys work on it. If you, I want to come back to you. Oh, wait, is it on now? It won't come on. We heard that. No, but, yeah. Can yeah. you hear me? Yeah. Oh. oh, there's a line through it, so we didn't think it came on. Okay. Well, Bob, Bob mentioned the uh, three days of blindness on the road to Damascus, where Jesus blinded Paul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, I think there these little Christian elements that run through this play are the reason that he said it in a pre-Christian world so that it wouldn't be obvious so that we'd look for it <laughs> so that well, they wouldn't be mentioning it yeah I think I think the point the, one of the biggest points is not I mean you, if you're a nihilistic you can think well I've lost everything but I don't think that's the point of the play is what you've gained I mean, what the characters gained at the end, they they lost in a worldly sense, but they they won in a Christly sense. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, they didn't they they gave up the worldly wisdom for the world for really the the wisdom of God in the end. Yeah, and I think that's. And that's more Christian than not listed, so. Yeah. I'm searching for that. I can't. Um, you know, Lear, it's. Um, let me come back to this question again, but let me. Because um, I, I don't want to leave it. I want to stay here. There's a. I can't find it. Um, but the, the line where Lear says, I'm on a wheel of fire. That he's using that um, image of Boethius again, the Wheel of Fortune. But here, it's that the pain is so great that he says, "I'm on a wheel of um, of um, fortune." Um, when Lear and Cordelia first meet, and he says, "Let's go away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds. We'll talk with um, them about who's in, who's out, who's in court, court news." I'm losing out, take upon the mystery of things as if we were God's spies, we'll wear out, all of that. Um, is he at the same place where he is at the end when he loses his daughter? Or is there still something for him to learn? Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds in the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies. Set that, set that passage where he says, let's go away, we'll be fine. And um, to the end, when he has her in his lap, and he says, my poor fool is hanged, thou come no more, never, 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 pray you undo this button, thank you, sir, do you see this, look on her, look on her, look, we've got to come back to that line, look on her, but... Is he the same man when he first comes to Dover and utters those words as he is when he has Cordelia in his lips, or is something else brought him beyond that point he was at when when they first come to Dover and he speaks those words about going away to prison? 
Anybody? Chuck, go ahead. You look like you're... Oh, well, other than for that particular question, other than that he's just deeply chastened and, and humbled by grief, not much. I mean, he's broken at that point. Yeah. He's in despair. That, that's, the, that's the difference between the two. He's in despair. Anybody else? Ann? Ann, we need to dust you off here. You've been away for too long. We've got to hear from you tonight. Well, I was going to just pretend that my microphone wouldn't come off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's on. We hear you. Come on, Ann. You know, he's realizing that with her, he can be okay even in prison. And then that is taken from him. Yep, yep. So go to my question. Is this Christian or nihilist? Even that's taken away. The nihilists have a point here it's worth saying. Because there's so much... Uh, pointless suffering present here, it's really hard to explain the death of Cornelia, who is just the, um, the incarnation of goodness. I mean, my goodness, why take her out? It, it, in the end, it is Christian because, uh, well, there's the, the, the themes of redemption that we've mentioned. Uh, there's the offering up of suffering. There's the, uh, the offering of himself of Kent, the absolute loyalty. And then the theme of uh, Christian love, which runs right through that. You don't find that in any nihilist work, it's worth thinking what nihil means. It's nothing. Nothing is everything's pointless. And mm -hmm. a, a purely nihilist play is a very boring play, too. Good for you. Good for you, Chuck. Yeah. I mean, doesn't doesn't this bring Lear even that much closer to Christ on the cross when Christ had to lose everything and Mary sure. as his mother? Because that's the closest relationship there. It's not his disciples. I mean, he, he clearly loves them. He's been training them for a year, a couple of years to form the church. But Mary has to see her son die, and Christ yeah. gives up everything. Absolutely, there's nothing he holds on to because otherwise, the redemption would have been flawed. He had to take on everything that was human and die for absolutely everything. So it seems to me one of the one of the reasons for me this is such an amazing. Well, anybody, let me let me stop. Anybody else want to add anything here? Um, and do you? I mean, I think. What Chuck and you are saying, and, and, do you, and I definitely think that it is more Catholic than Protestant, particularly when we think in terms of the uh, predetermination. Uh, he's not blaming fate. Sorry, he's not saying you know, in. He's, he's not blaming fate. They are realizing their own fault in what has come about. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You, I don't, I don't want to. No, I, I'll let somebody else jump in. <laughs> okay, wait. Anybody? Anybody? I, I want to get to the Protestant Catholic question because it's a, it's a naughty and a difficult one because we're talking about Christians for all of us. Um, but anybody else on this question of whether it's Cath or sorry, Christian or nihilist? I think what Anne and and, all, and Connie and and Chuck, what you all said answers that question. Does anybody have any doubts still about it or reservations? I think you guys have made the case pretty well. Any any questions? There's an extraordinary love. That's not nothing. And the fact that it costs everything only makes it that much more Christian because for a Christian, 
our, our, our faith is tested most when we stand to lose everything. Remember, faith is not faith unless you have no reason for holding it any longer. Hope is not hope unless you have no reason for hoping. It's only when things are hopeless that faith means anything. Love is only real when you have no reason for doing it. When you hold on to something when you have every reason for not loving something. That's what Christ did. So in this end, it just seems to me it's so touching. Um, I want to go to one more thing because I'm afraid we're going to lose it if we don't. I, I want to come back to the Protestant question, um, Catholic Protestant question, but look at the very end. Lear's got Cordelia in his arm and he's going, my poor fool hanged, thou come no more, never, 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 never. There's a cry of despair if you ever heard one. Everything's lost. I mean, emphatically, no matter, no matter what goes on in the world, he will never have, again, I think Anne said it well, he, with, with Cordelia, he could be okay. They could escape to prison. I think that's why Lear has not come to everything yet on that Dover Beach scene. He still has something to learn. He wants to escape. He wants to flee. He wants to have it still his way. Even though it's, it's understandable it, and it's mild, he hasn't accepted the full... That is, it's, it's still a man who hasn't fully accepted whatever's going to come. And it's interesting to me, at the end, it's the Stoic. It's Kent, who's the Stoic, is an image for, uh, for Shakespeare of the Stoicism that preceded Christianity, that's so important for Christianity. It's the Stoic who goes off and says, um, I have a journey shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. That's a Stoic going on to something beyond. But Lear says... She won't come, never, 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 never. Pray you undo this button. God bless. Look on her, look her lips, look there, look there. They think he's mad. Is there anything else to say about that moment? When he looks at her and says, wait, look on her, look her lips. Look there, look there. Wait, by the way, I want to re just recall some things for you. In the end of Anthony and Cle Cle Cleopatra, it's a pig and play, brings this love that's about to enter the world into what's going on and everything that takes place there. The Romans don't know anything about it. Cleopatra and Anthony are moving towards something, the Roman, very un-Roman. Othello, which we've read, ends with um, that scene in which Othello kills his wife. He kills what he loves most in the world. And after she's supposedly dead, suddenly we hear this voice. And, um, and, and, um, People ask, what is she saying? And she, somebody, I think it's me, said, who did this to you? And she said, nobody, myself. She seems to come back from dead. Lots of people are going to read that differently. She seems to come back from the other world and says, nobody, I myself. Modern feminists are going to say she's protecting her husband. The way women do. Is she, or, or is she seeing... She's implicated in things in a way she didn't see while she's alive. Here Lear is going, do you see this? Do you see this? Remember, these mad people who've left the circumference of moving towards the center are not seeing things the way people do. Yeah? They, they don't have the language. They don't see the way. There's something strange to them. And he says, do you see this? Look, the verbs are all with vision. Look on her, look her lips, look there, look there. The, the people say, leave him alone. 
he's lost it. You know, he, he can't bear it. It's too much. It's like he's lost his good sense. Is that how we understand this moment, or is something else going on? Tina, you want to jump in here? How do you see this moment? Um, <clears throat> I'm not really sure. It's not an easy moment. It's certainly not an easy moment. Lori. I knew you were going to come to Say what? Sorry? <laughs> I, I said I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> yeah, I am going to ask you. Come on. Of course I'm going to ask you. I don't know. I want to ask somebody who's got some, some, some sort of semblance of sense in your family there. <laughs> he just takes over. No, no, no. <laughs> Come on, Lori. What do you think? What do you think? Sure, what's your response to this moment? Repeat the moment, please. This is the moment when Lear is looking down and he says, Never, 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 you'll come no more. Pray unto... He's saying... Undo this button. I mean, it's just a, it's so humbling. It's such a, thank you, sir. Do you, somebody un, undoes the button. Do you see this look on her look, her lips? He's just put a mirror up before her minutes before to see if she's dead. And he says she's dead. Now he's looking and saying, look here, look on her, look her lips. Look there, look there. The people around him thinks he's losing it. To leave him alone, he's lost it, he's and he's going to die in this moment. My question is, does he see something or is he mad? And still blind and not seeing things the way they are. Or does he see something they don't see? He sees her resurrected. I would see, say that he sees something deeper. Um, say again? Something deeper. I would say that he sees something deeper. Is that, is that Lori? Is that you? Yes, sir. Yeah, good for you. No, no it's Tina. Regret, I don't know the beauty. Connie, you have any thoughts on this moment? This um, Anne, you want to make a full return to our class? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm going to jump out on a limb here because there's not a question in my mind. I mean, you can think I'm mad too and that I've lost it, but you are—you already know anyway. I think he sees Cordelia in the next life alive um, because he's passed that threat. This is what the word liminal means, a threshold moment. You know, we've seen them over and over again in Shakespeare. That's what makes these plays sacramental, that he can see, he sees things. He, he doesn't leave this world. He, he's absolutely rooted in this world, completely in the pain that human beings are sometimes made to suffer. And we've watched Lear lose his sight, re recover it, grow in what reason and madness, remember that line of when, when um, Edgar looks at the two men and says reason and madness, that so much of what Lear says that seems insane is actually making sense when they remember when he's talking about adultery and the judges and switching places and 
that he's learning to see things other people don't and that's part of the beauty of what Shakespeare's doing that he's he's showing us something that that other poets can't at least that's my reading that he's he's seeing Cordelia in the next life and he dies so you can and anybody who wants to disagree take it up but if if I can leave it there, I'd like to go to this last question because we only have a minute or a couple of minutes left. Could a Protestant write this play? Is this Catholic or Protestant? And I, I don't want anybody to take a stand here unless you can back it up with a reason because otherwise we're just making blind assertions. Um, is this a Christian play? I think everybody's agreement. Think for one, one of the most amazing things that happens is not only what happens with Lear and Cordelia, which to me is extraordinary, that he that the two of them forgive each other. They are completely humbled. He reaches a point where he can love, and then he loses the daughter that made this possible. By the way, that's an opening to Pericles, where we're going. That the daughter that he loves so much makes it possible for him to love in a way that he never knew was possible. That's absolutely Christian. And at that moment, he loses her. You can say that's Neilus. I thought Ed... Um, um, Chuck's answer was just nailed it. I mean, I, in a way that I've never seen so clearly put before. Uh, Neil's play would be boring because nothing means anything. He, I mean, he's absolutely, that was, God bless your soul, Chuck. I mean, that was an amazing piece of wisdom. But here, Edmund, Edmund says, I pant to do some good. How do you explain that except as a moment of grace? Where did that come from? He, he heard his father being described. He hears that the two women died, and he says, I pant for life. I want to do some good. Quick, go save them. Remember when we read Dante in the very opening of the, of the uh, in, or Purgatorio, when Dante's in pre-purgation, all the people who were there who were people who only saved themselves in the last instant, one of them cried out when he was dying, Mary. He's saved. I remember saying to you, it doesn't matter how bad a guy is, according to our faith, if something in his soul longs for God, God's not going to turn away from that person. That's, that's the orthodox. I mean, that's the orthodoxy of our faith. That's the center of our faith. Here, Edmund's going, I pant for life. I want to do some good. So the, the redemptive actions taking place at the end here are extraordinary, and they're numerous. It's an amazing ending. The last thing you could say about this play is it's nihilist. Take my last question. Is it Catholic or Protestant? Can we tell? And take some care here. I mean, I don't, I don't care where you go, but I just I would like you to have a reason. To, um, because both Catholic and Protestant are Christian. We both believe in Christ. We both believe in redemptions. Is this Catholic or Protestant? Connie, what would you say? Tell me from your heart. Speak from your heart. I'm thinking. Um, I, I would say Catholic, but I've got to come up with a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> I can't just say Catholic. Um, one of the aims, you know, of this whole course is is that it should hopefully help us make a better defense of our faith, all of us. Right, the, right. The, it reason is <coughs> integral to what we believe, that 
that God gave us these powers of reason, they're integral to our faith. They're, they're one of the things that sets us off from the world, secular and Protestant. And you you've been looking probing, deeply probing for the last fifteen minutes. Come on, you have it because I know you started to say that a while ago. Can you can you offer a reason at all? I think you know, where the the Protestant belief is that believing in Christ, accepting Him as your Savior alone, is all you need. Uh, I think Catholic is more yes, but you, but I'm trying to. I mean, you you still have so to kind of you you have to repent. You have to earn your way back. Would, would there be? I just have to throw. Is there like a sense of purgatory here in a way? Um, it is to me. Yeah, that's that's yeah. kind of what I was thinking more where Protestants don't have purgatory. But Catholics believe in that, so those last moments to me were um, purgatorial. Were, purgatorial, yeah. They weren't. Thank they, you for it, for for saying what I was sorry where I was thinking, oh, but okay. you couldn't quite come up. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Is purgatorial. Yes. Anybody else? We've only got. A, I'm sorry, we're beyond time. But he could. This is Michael. You, you, you've been looking really thoughtful. You have something here. I don't. I've been very unsure about this Catholic and Protestant question. But the theme I see running through the whole play is this: this sense of vision or blindness, and uh, some people, or uh, some people at points in, in their development have vision that they didn't have before, but even even back in uh, Act 1, Scene 1, when Lear has thrown out Cordelia, but France sees her virtue, and he says mm -hmm. that that art most rich being poor, most choice mm -hmm. forsaken, and most loved, despised. He sees things in Cordelia that Lear has not. And and Lear, when he's on the heath and he's led to the little hut, he suddenly he's being led to a place of shelter, and he's and he he knows it's a it's a a hovel. And he says, "The art of our necessities is strange that can make vile things precious." He suddenly sees something there, yeah. the virtue of something very humble. Yeah. yeah, but that's that doesn't make a Catholic. I'm 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 a little perplexed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I enjoyed. I mean, all that you said is so right on. So yeah. Anybody else, Chuck? Yeah, you, like the. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say the Protestant view of that, you know, they can want that once saved, always saved, but they can do, you, know, you can go and kill somebody and you're still going to be saved because God has done, you know, Jesus Christ has done all the work already. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, for, for us, it's, it's, that's, no, that's presumption. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's right. a good. You cannot say that, you know, oh, well, I can go kill somebody tomorrow, but, you know, God's going to forgive me. I mean, that's insanity, honestly. Let's, but, let's put it on a lower, just to do, to, to give some credit, I I couldn't agree. I mean, your 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 explanation is right on, um, Connie. But 
let's say they can go on committing, let's say minor sins, so that that yeah, something no. in this holding, a, you know. But but yes, you're right, because the, for them, virtues are um, grace is imputed. It's impute. You put it on externally, but it it um, it it doesn't mean you have to change inside or that you have to go through an ordeal to change. It's yeah. imputed. It's put on. That will save you. Um, I think the response to Luther when he made that argument was that it's a little bit like saying snow can cover dung. It's still dung, you know, that that was the image that people used to respond to Luther. Let me just offer this question and then, and I'll leave it a moment for a response and then it's time to stop pastime. But if, if according to the Protestant we're all depraved, that the effects of the fall were complete, that we all live in depravity, so we're going to do evil without Christ. How do you explain virtuous actions before Christ or even while Christ when a person's not Christian? Because you know from Dante, remember the virtuous pagans are there. They're still in hell. But they're not being punished because they don't carry sins to punish them because that's what we saw in hell, that our sins are the source of our punishment, that what we do we carry to the next life. So taking Christ seriously when he says, um, you said... Um, killing was bad. I'm telling you if you've thought about killing in your heart, you already committed it. Or if you, you say you're not supposed to commit adultery, I'm telling you if you looked at a woman adulterously, you've... For Christ, the whole point of what he's, or a large part of what he's doing is to get people to repent and change inwardly, not just outwardly. Um, that if we don't change inwardly, and if we look at Lear, I mean, the um, the one thing that we have to say about Lear is that he completely changed it, and Gloucester, and Edmund, that all the major characters undergo um, painful, painful changes in their lives to change the way, and when they do, it, it changes the way they see things, and it changes the way they feel. When Gloucester says, I see it feelingly, he means it. His heart is involved in what he said. Remember in the opening, when I read the opening, he was so glib in his description of the birth of his sons. I mean, it was just shameful for me to listen to him, the way he just passed them off like it was nothing. That's the one thing. The other to think about is, if conversion depends on believing in Christ, particularly through Scripture, because sola Scripture, it's the ultimate source of things, believing in, believe in Christ, and... What do you do if Scripture is not around or Christ isn't around? Because we're, Shakespeare set this play nine centuries before Christ. I'm not aware of anybody in this play who's read Scripture. I'm not aware of anybody in this play who's seen Christ. How do you explain all of this? What Shakespeare's doing, I think, that a Protestant cannot do, because a Protestant degrades nature, Luther did, Calvin did, that nature's corrupt, it's only grace, we believe that nature is good, that we, unaided reason is a good thing. It's not depraved. It's not depraved. That's one of the problems of our modern world. It's, take, it's taken away the dignity of man, the, the natural innate dignity God gave us in our mind. Will it get us to heaven? No, we don't believe that. But it's still good. Um, we've got a play set nine centuries before Christ, and we're watching people... Agon agonizingly go through these ordeals having to do with our nature. Edmund says he was born. You know, we've talked about the theme of nature in the book and its two views on nature. And 
How do we explain what happens at the end and the amazing kind of love that they come to through suffering? Um, Shakespeare's affirming the, this extraordinary capacity that man has by nature. Otherwise, how do we explain that moment at Edmund when he says, I long to do some good, I pant for life. Shakespeare's affirming the natural goodness in man, how bad it can go with us, the things that we can do to destroy it, but he's also showing there's this great capacity in man to grow through suffering, to share in the life of Christ. I'm so sorry Heather's not here, and I'm sorry Mel that he's not, because, I mean, we remember we, I, we talked about this, why did, he, why did he set this play in a pre-Christian world? at a time when most people at his time were turning away from Christianity. We're reading this play as moderns. Lot, lots of people are leaving the church. Lots of people don't believe in Christ. We're reading a play that Shakespeare set nine centuries before Christ. Why did he do that? What, what could people learn? And more importantly for me, yeah. not just what people could learn in their heads, what they could become capable of feeling because of, of what they're helped to feel in this play. Gloucester's saying, I see it feelingly. That we participate in this suffering. Does it help our capacity to suffer, to see that there's a reason for suffering, that it's okay, that we don't have to see it as a bad thing? in our modern world because you know that the modern the one of the one things that defines the modern world is to try to do away with all suffering yeah. do away with it and we'll have a perfect world okay any any last comments before we stop any thoughts about Lear or these questions that we've been struggling with it strikes me when you when you put it that way that um, you think Shakespeare, and then you think about the pre-Christian authors, and in many cases where modern plays or, or Renaissance plays had um, were prefigured in uh, in pre-Christian plays, like Romeo and Juliet, prefigured by Antigone, it's just a rewrite, you know, in many in many ways. So, do, when you put it that way, are you aware of any pagan authors who could have had the characters do something like this? I mean, it's, it's not a rhetorical question. I mean, could there have been an Edmund, or was there in any of the Greek literature? Um, I, um, the answer to that is emphatically, absolutely yes, um, Chuck. Um, but uh, you know, the the trouble with our course is that we've been going chronologically. So you're probably, you know, we're a long time past Sophocles and Aeschylus. But yeah. if you go back to the way that I presented those plays, or even the Iliad, I mean, you know that one of my arguments is that all of those poets had intimations of Christ: the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, um, Oedipus Rex, the Oresti. All of those had intimations of Christ in amazing ways. They didn't see him. Take Oedipus. I, Suzanne and I were talking about this at dinner, and I was. I wish we had time for a discussion. Now we don't. The difference between Oedipus and uh, Boethius and Lear, particularly Lear, because Lear and Gloucester are figures who we identify with blindness. They don't see and come to see a new way through their blindness. Oedipus blinds himself. But you know an Oedipus at Colonus, and a play most moderns will not touch, <laughs> because it's there that um, um, Oedipus is assumed into the divine order. The gods take him in. But 
One of the one of the remarkable things about that play for me is that Sophocles sees so clearly that there's something wrong with the world. And he shows that with Oedipus blinding himself because he realizes it's all wrong. He could not have done that unless he knew that there was something on the other side of the world. Even if we don't see it in Oedipus Rex, we know that we know that spiritually He's an extraordinary, beautiful creature because he, he sees his own faults completely, enough to blind himself. One of the, one of the questions I wish we had time we don't is how, he, how he's like um, Othello or Lear or you know, any of the Shakespeare's heroes. I would say there's still some pride in Oedipus because he blinds himself. He's so angry with him, fault, that he completely takes it out on himself. That's not the actions of a humble Christian. Or, or it's questionable. It's a probable... He, he's doing justice. He blinds himself to, to answer his blindness in life. But at the end of Oedipus at Colonus, he's assumed by the gods. So it's, it's hard for me to look at Sophocles without being aware that he knew that there was something else. He didn't have Christ. He didn't have... maybe Some of the, some of the authors may have had access to the Gospels, Virgil may have. I mean, there's questions that we can only, you know, ask, ask and talk about. We can't be definitive about it. But, but Sophocles had to be aware that there was something more. In Oedipus at Colonus, he's, in, he's definitive. Oedipus is taken up by the gods. So we know that for Sophocles, there's a kind of virtue that man is capable of coming to through suffering. And it's only through suffering that he comes to this wisdom, and it's a, it's a way that it's a way that opens the divine order for him. Um, Eskel, I, you could make the same argument for Eskelis in the Oresteia, which we did. So, what, I mean, one of the reasons I want to do those things with you guys is to show you that this extraordinary thing that's part of our Catholic tradition—that there's something there in nature. The pagan poets saw it; they didn't see Christ. Um, and the great poets like Dante, Boethius, Shakespeare, all saw it. I mean, Laurie's word was, he sees something more deeply. You know, we can't answer that definitively. We don't know. We, you know, an empiricist mindset, the modern mindset said, are you kidding your nuts, Dr. Alexander? Prove it. <laughs> Prove it. That's, that's like saying to a peasant who's experienced a miracle, Prove it. Yeah. If you begin with a scientific mind, there's no way you can. You, there's no way you can see into that unless you stepped into the shoes of that peasant who had a faith enough to see it. But the amazing thing about so many of the, the great poets, the ones that we've read—Homer, Virgil, Sophocles, Aeschylus—those poets all created works of art that gave us this sense that something is going on there. The Oresteia is partly about the Eucharist. It's, it's you know, remember fathers eating their children, cutting up their children, and passing them on to be eaten. It's such a perversion. Where did he get that? It's a perfect perversion of the Eucharist, and they relate it to the divine. You know, the 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 meal that Pelops served up to the gods, cut up these humans to test the gods. That the image by which they show that kind of human presumption. I think that was Anne's word. That human presumption is food feasting. I mean, there's this, Homer 
in the Odyssey, remember that Odysseus, doesn't, his men don't get home. They're told not to eat the cattle of um, Helos. And the cattle were unborn. They were eternal. It's a, it's a feasting image that does away with them. They're destroyed right after that. That these ancient poets have these amazing intuitions about the deepest truths at the center of the Catholic faith. I think I better stop because you're all looking at me as if I'm a little bit mad right now. <laughs> any any responses or Chuck? I, I, does that answer your question? It's it's, it's yes. to me it's amazing actually what they do. Yes. Thanks. Okay. In, nothing. Anything else before we go? At, it's good to see you all again. Genuinely good to see you. Genuinely good to see you. And I'm it's good. I'm glad you're back safe. And thank you. Yeah. Um, Can you see the list of uh, what you, I know you mentioned it earlier? I could go back to the recording, but I know we're doing Pericles next, and then I'll um, send it, Connie. I'll send it tomorrow. I'll go. I'll go, and I'll give you the actual works themselves, so you can you can get them. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, just a, a th um, Thanksgiving um, here. I'm glad you're all well. And a caution, I, I know probably don't need to see this because you're all, you're all either f foolish, and it's a big question in mind whether how foolish you are because you keep coming back to this stuff. <laughs> we get all this news, you know, of, of COVID. It's, it's in our families, um, immediately around us more. People in the congregation, people in the families are getting COVID right and left. Um, it doesn't sound that, that it's as fatal or as dangerous as the earlier, but take care, would you all please? I'm saying that earnestly. Um, um, we, have, we, we can't be presumptuous here. There's something, something's going on and, and lots of people are coming down with it and people still do die. And um, So anyway, take care, okay, all of you. Um, keep Suzanne and me in, our, in your prayers. We will keep you in ours. And um, Connie, I'm giving a quiz beginning the next <laughs> class on Pericles. I'll be ready. <laughs> okay, you guys. Have a good week. Have a good week. Okay. okay. Bye. 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 Goodbye. Bye. Everybody.